0: Alright, so we are going to embark on a little mini-series. I told you that uh, we would look at some key chapters. And so I've entitled this particular series, there's nine sermons in this set. I've entitled this particular mini-series, The Seven. Because we're going to look at seven specific letters that Jesus wrote to seven specific churches in Asia Minor or modern Turkey as contained in the book of Revelation. So join me in the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John. Join me in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we've got to set up this series by understanding the book that we're going to study. And so we're going to study chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And we may stick our toe into chapter 4. When we get there, we'll get a consensus and see what we want to do. But I'm thinking we may go into the worship of chapter 4. But I thought today, in order to appreciate the book of Revelation, I'd give you some context, some understanding of the book of Revelation so that you can appreciate our study, and in particular, um, this set of seven churches. So what, what's going on here in these first three chapters is that Jesus wrote seven specific letters to seven specific churches to help them along. And so as a church plant, And trying to define what a healthy church looks like, this is a great place to go because Jesus commends some things in these churches. And honestly, he condemns some things in these churches. So you're going to see this commendation and condemnation piece going through these seven letters. This week, we're going to look at Revelation 1, 1 to 8. And then next week, 9 to 20. 9 to 20 is significant because it's all about the risen Lord. And so it's going to fall perfectly on Easter. It'll be our Easter message. We'll have a nice evangelistic tone to it. And we'll unfold and unpack the resurrected Lord in all his glory. So I thought it would be important for us to jump into the book of Revelation, start our series of nine, maybe 10 or 12. We'll see how it goes. And I've entitled this particular sermon, John the Revelator. John the Revelator. In Revelation 1, 1 to 8, okay? Let's read the text and then we're going to walk through why Revelation matters. And I'm going to give you a brief overview of the entire book of Revelation so you can kind of end times in your mind and how it plays out for us as a local church. So let's read this text here, the Revelation of John. Verse 1. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his fellow bondservants. The things... Which must take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. John is the author of the book of Revelation, who then testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And also obey the things which are written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Normal greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us, has forgiven us of our sins by his blood. He has then made us to be kingdom priests to his God and father. Ah, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, here's the theme of the book of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega. Jesus speaking directly here. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the salutation, the beginning of the letter called Revelation. Why does it matter? Why does the book of Revelation, let's start, kind of zoom away a little bit. Why does the book of Revelation itself matter? Well, here's why it matters. Because it explains how the world history, how world history comes to an end. This is the end times. We call it the study of eschatology, the study of last things. You have ecclesiology, there's some big words here. You have ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Right? You have pneumatology, which is the study of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You have eschatology, the study of end times. So this is how it all ends. It's important. It's very important that we understand how the world comes to an end. Furthermore, it's God's final word. Before he closed the canon, the 66 books, we call a canon or a book, right? This canon, before it closes, this is the last book written AD 96 towards the end of the first century it is written so this is the last book it's God's last word about last things it's an important part of the totality of scripture like genesis it covers worldwide events now the first three chapters are going to be specific churches in asia minor but it will it will it will be representative of all churches of all ages but it will it will it will bloom As you hit chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. It sheds tremendous light on the king, King Jesus. So in his first coming, you remember he came in humility. In his second coming, he's going to come in victory. It defines and and tells us about the defeat of Satan. Which Ephesians 2, 2 says he's the prince the power of the air. He's currently controlling the world as we live in it. It is his sphere, his realm. It's going to talk about the end of Satan. It defines our future. When you get to chapters 21 and 22, you want to know what heaven's going to be like? Then you find yourself in Revelation 21 and 22, right? And the Bible would be incomplete if you did not have the book of Revelation. We'd have 65 books. We wouldn't know the end. We wouldn't have hope. And it would be in some way deficient, right? Finally, it's important because this is the last word to the churches. You can see it's written to seven actual churches. We are a local church like they were a local church. And so this is Jesus' last word to these seven churches. And it's intended for all churches of all ages to make sure they understand what a local church is to look like. What does a healthy church look like? If you look at the totality of the seven, that's why I've entitled our series, The Seven... When you look at the totality of the seven, it'll help define who we are as a local church. Why have I chosen this series? That's a fair question. Why are we going down this path these next nine weeks? Well, first and foremost, because it's scripture. I mean, it's in the text of scripture. And the fact that most people avoid it makes me want to run into it, right? Because it's hard to interpret makes me want to do it and to get involved in it so that you can appreciate it. Because it was written to be understood. A second reason why I've chosen this series for this church is because it's a wake-up call. It, it bakes into everything we talk about urgency. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. There's eminency to his second coming. Third, it gives us hope. It's supposed to inspire us and to encourage us and to give us hope that one day, all tears will be wiped away from our eyes, our sins will be forgiven, and we'll ultimately be in heaven. Fourth reason why I've chosen it for this church is because I hope that after studying these seven churches, you will have a formed, healthy love for the local church because Jesus is the shepherd of every single church, right? He, he is the senior pastor of every local church. A pastor is just an under-shepherd. And so we see how the church plays out in, in the redemptive role of history. And furthermore, the church is not a luxury. You're here today because you feel compelled to be here. You, you feel compelled to be sitting under the word of God. You feel compelled to gather. Why? Because Jesus died for the local church. The local church is absolutely critical. It's not a luxury It's absolutely critical for your sanctification, for your growth, and you will be deficient as a believer without embracing a local church. Fifth reason why I chose it, verse 3. Look at it again. There's a promise in verse 3. Blessed, happy. is he or she who reads it. Three things. Read it, hear it, and obey it. It's the only book of the Bible... That comes with a blessing. Yet how often do we skip over Revelation. Because we think we can't understand it. This is the only book that embeds. A clear upfront, Right out of the gate. Blessing if you'll study with it. And you'll linger with it. And you'll loiter. And seek to understand it. Right? The other and final reason why I've chosen it. Is because of the urgency. Look at the end of verse 3. For the time is near. This is written in A.D. 96. We're now in 2018. It's nearer than it's ever been, right? I mean, that was two, almost 2,000 years ago this was written. And he said the time is near. We are in the age, the, they call it the epoch, the period of time which Jesus Christ will come back. Now, no, many, no man knows when he will exactly come back. But listen to me on this. This is the most important thing when you understand the book of Revelation. Nothing has to happen for him to return. No, no trigger has to be pulled. No event has to happen for him to return. He could come back this afternoon. Nothing is in the way. It's he's cleared the decks. Everything in Scripture has been fulfilled. And this prophecy talks about from when he comes back into the end of the age. Okay? That's what the book of Revelation says. So there's urgency, and I hope to instill urgency in you so that we live as if he's coming back tomorrow. And I think if we start living like he comes back tomorrow, it will affect how we live, how we think, right? So there's urgency, and as you stumble through the book of Revelation, you'll find uh, urgency surfacing over and over and over again. Now... I confess, at times, the letter is a little bit confusing. And so what happens is most people step back away from it because they can't quite get their mind around some of the implications. And I confess there are some crazy things in here. There are dragons, angels, beasts, locusts with human faces, right? Vivid imagery that we have to grapple with. However, verse 3 says it was written for you to understand. And it was written so that you could be blessed and it would profit you as a family. It would profit your marriage. It would give you hope and it would define the end times. So I say we dive in. What you'll have in every generation as you read commentaries from the first century all the way to the 21st century. Every century thought they were the generation that Jesus would return. That's the idea behind the book of Revelation. Because we don't know, we should assume it is going to happen now. We do know that it hasn't happened since A.D. 96. So the clock has been ticking and spinning since A.D. 96. So certainly we are closer. No guarantee it will happen in our lifetime. But the point in how it's written from 32,000 feet is, listen, he could come back at any moment. And so therefore you should be ready. Now, there are four primary ways people interpret the book of Revelation. I'm going to give you all four and tell you where you should be, okay? First, and these are some just crazy words. I know it's a little technical this morning, but it's important to appreciate the whole. This is, these are four primary ways. There's about a bazillion out there, but these are the four. First is the preterist view. The preterist view. It means that the entire book... The prophecy of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. In other words, it's already happened. Rome, um, the persecution, all the things that you find in four and six, to chapter 19, the bowls, the seals, all those have already taken place. So this is past. This is historical document. The preterist view. Okay, That's one view. I don't believe that to be true. Second view is the historical view. This is where the fulfillment of the various prophecies are happen or have happened all through church history, right? And so you'll see people interpreting uh, different pieces of revelation as defining something or someone or an event in their historical context. So, um, the the monks and friars of the second century were the the locusts in. In Revelation chapter 6. Muhammad is the, the fallen stone. Right? Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth I. Was the first bold judgment. So in every generation. They picked a piece of it. Because the persecution was so bad. And they found historically. And tied itself to the book of, of Revelation. Adolf Hitler. Was the red horse. at infinitum. You can follow it out. All the way to helicopters. Or locusts. In our generation. And you've. May have stumbled on someone teaching that on TV. Jack ben or someone crazy. And, and and so that's the kind of historical view, right? That, that's out there. And so they basically take the events of Revelation, put them into their historical context, and they find some defining moment. That's the historical approach to interpreting the book of Revelation. Third, there's the idealist view. So basically they say the whole book is allegory. It's not to be interpreted historically and literally. It's just allegorical of events and it's really a big story about the conflict between evil and good but it doesn't relate to actual historical events so it's it's really a kind of a, 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 a myth an allegory you know about a story about the end times but never was intended to be interpreted historically fourth, And the proper view, I believe, is the futurist view. This is my view. I believe it should be your view. It deploys normal hermeneutics, a grammatical, historical approach to how you study the Bible. In other words, you don't study the Bible like a document that's literally written and literally true and then get to Revelation and go, ah, and throw your hands up. No, you just keep plowing through. That's how you approach Genesis. Genesis. It's how you approach the book of Revelation, historical grammatical interpretation, right? I think the apocalypse reveals the actual future. The book of Revelation is God's roadmap for the end times. It's the grand finale of all of redemption, redemptive history. I think it honors the prophetic nature of the book as it talks about being a prophecy, as we saw in verses. through and it serves as the final book in the canon the book of Revelation and it's the final chapter of world history so how we're going to interpret Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 3 as we study in our series is how you would interpret chapter 4 through 19 and then 20, 21 and 22 there's no distinction in how you interpret it it's a futuristic book that's defining the future of History and what's going to happen And that's how you should approach this book It's literally true, it's literally going to happen And it's absolutely Important, case in point The seven churches Were actually seven Churches that John Had influence over there in Asia Minor Those seven churches were the only churches Outside of Jerusalem Or Palestine that ever Experienced apostolic authority Right you had Paul go into the seven churches, right? Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, those churches. You had Paul go into those churches, and you had John. They were the only two apostles that ever were there and had influence over those seven churches. In the latter part of his life, John is the only apostle alive, and he had influence over those seven specific churches. But as we study those seven churches, they're also reflective of churches in every era and every age. But they were actual churches. Like you could go there and go to the first Baptist church of Ephesus. And you could go to the first church in the uh, you know, Laodicean community church. You could go to their actual churches and visit them. And they had been influenced by two apostles. The only two outside of the holy city, Jerusalem. So... I believe we should take a futuristic position on the book of Revelation. We should study it as a, as a future document and, um, and, and written by God, as we'll see in a second. And I think it's just going to be absolutely fantastic. And guess what? It promises that when you read it as a family and you study it, it's going to blast your socks off. That's pretty cool. Like, it's going to be a blessing. Now, a couple of things to note about the book of Revelation as we kind of enter the portico here. There's two dominant numbers that you're going to see through the book of Revelations. There's, they're written into the, the text. They're baked in. One is the number seven. Hence, I've entitled our series of The Seven. And you have seven churches, right? You have seven seals. You have seven trumpets, seven figures, seven bowls, seven judgment, seven triumphs. Seven, the number seven, is a important number. It's the number of divinity. It's like God's divine signature on events it's the number of perfection it's also the number of completion right this is the end of the world this book defines the end of the world Uh, we run into it right in uh, in the first church there in Ephesus you write he writes to the seven stars in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands to the seven pastors over and over again you're gonna see seven I just want you to have that number in your mind Because it's a significant number for God. It's the number of divinity. The other number is an interpretive. And these are interpretive clues for us. The other number is three. Couplets. These triplets. Not couplets. These triplets keep appearing over and over again. You saw it there in verse three. Blessed are those who read it, hear it, and heed it. Most occasions you'll see everything grouped in threes. It's a stylistic element It's the number that symbolizes the trinity. It's it's kind of a mystery baked into the text there that always defines the trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the two dominant numbers in the book of Revelation when you study it are seven and three. Three for the trinity, these triplets, and then seven, as you'll see over and over again, I count 21 times the grouping of seven is actually mentioned. Now, let me give you 32,000 foot and then we'll dive into the quick text here. 32,000 foot, let me tell you about an end times. Let me give you an end times overview because you probably haven't studied this in a while and you might have read some sensational books that could be right or wrong around the end times by some authors. So here's what we know, okay? And this allows for some difference of opinions, difference in timing, but here's what we know for sure. First thing we know for sure, the church will continue to grow. God always has a remnant, he always has a church. He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It'll always be the case, the church will always grow and has a significant place in redemptive history. He died for the local church. So when you're planting a local church like we are, an expression of the gospel, a community of believers, it's significant, it's it's important, right? Second, satanic opposition will intensify. Satanic opposition will intensify. In other words, it's not going to get better, it will only get worse. And there's a plethora of verses on this. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, difficult days, scoffers, 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3, you know, they say you're coming. Why is he not coming? The whole scoffer motif there. Satanic opposition will intensify. Third, Israel will return to the promised land. Now we may differ when that happens. And how that happens. But Israel will have her day. Back in the promised land. Fourth. The church will be raptured to heaven. Now the timing of that may be different in the room. When he comes back. How he comes back. Is it a pre-tribulation rapture? A post-tribulation rapture? A mid-trip? There's all kinds of views. But the fact that the church will be with Jesus in heaven, raptured at some point, is a fact. Five, judgments of the tribulation period will follow. Okay, there'll be judgments that God will pour out judgment on the earth. It's the great tribulation period as recorded in scripture. As in chapter three, it's called the great day of His wrath, the great tribulation, chapter 6, 714. I mean, this is just over and over again. There is a period of tribulation, and it is defined by what? Seven years. Six. There's a marriage of Christ and the church. When the church is taken, right, there'll be a time where there, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb where rewards will be given out Where a meal will be participated in robes of righteousness will be dispersed and then they will accompany the Lord back to the earth. There as reflected in Revelation 19, 79, seven, there will be a triumphant return of Christ. He is coming back and it will be triumphant and it will be clear and every eye will behold him right It's the the climax of the apocalypse, the end times, as you see in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Followed by his return will be a millennial kingdom. Millennial is 1,000 years. Christ comes back with his church that he redeemed. They will rule and reign for 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, there will be what we call, number nine, final triumph, where Satan... Will again raise his ugly head, make one last final act of rebellion, and be dispersed. As Revelation 20, 11 to 15 talks about him being cast into the lake of fire. And then 10, we do know there is an eternal state, as recorded in Revelation 21 and 22. And if you want to know what heaven's going to be like, take a gander. That's what it's like. So the book is kind of. The book is kind of chopped up. So, you know chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3, there's about these seven churches. With the prologue here in chapter 1 beginning it. You have the seven churches. Then in chapters 4 and 5, you have what worship will be like in heaven. 6 to 19. Chapters 6 to 19 is that great tribulation. That's the record of everything that's going to happen in that seven-year block of time. Right? Then... You have the return of Christ in chapter 19. You have the millennial, chapter 20. The great white throne judgment, the second half of 20. And then the eternal state, 20 and 22, 21 to 22. So that's how the book is kind of framed up. Don't be intimidated by it. I'm going to review these themes. I'll be bringing these themes back into play as we study together. I just wanted to get you kind of reoriented towards end times, towards the apocalypse, right? The end of all things. And so that you can appreciate And it's written for these seven churches. This is Jesus' last word to the seven faithful churches of Asia Minor about how the world is going to end. And I promise you, if you'll stick with me these next nine weeks, it will be a blessing. It'll be a wild ride at times, but it will be an absolute blessing. Now, let's approach the text. I know I've weighted you up with a lot of information here. Let's approach the text. Let me give you context to chapter 1. Its author is John, the Apostle John. The year is AD 95. It's a Sunday morning in AD 95. John hears a booming voice. We'll see this next week. But John hears a booming voice, spins around, and he comes face to face with Christ. And Christ says, you're going to write down for me how it all is going to end. Right? John has been a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. This is John who's written five books, right? He's written the Gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, book of Revelation. So he's written five books, a substantive amount of books. He's the only living apostle at the time. This is AD 95, end of the first century. He has been dispersed. Since really AD 60 to Asia Minor to modern Turkey today, and was helping serve in these churches. At the time that Jesus shows up in 9 through 20, he has been exiled to an island of Patmos. It's like a first century concentration camp. He's taken big rocks, and he's then making little rocks out of big rocks. He's forced into work on a chain gang. It's this massive, rocky, cold, isolated, harsh island off the coast there. And he's been exiled there as a punishment for his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Why is he there? Because he wouldn't shut up. He was absolutely unstoppable. And so he has been there. And uh, he was unstoppable. And he was faithful Uh, To proclaim the gospel. And therefore, he was sentenced there as punishment. Now remember, this is the John 63 years prior to writing this right here and getting this document. 63 years prior, he was on uh, the beach fishing. Remember? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen, right? The sons of thunder. That's who he was. This is John who's about to write this, who we're going to spend nine weeks hearing from John the Revelator, right? And so he was working his father's fishing business when Jesus showed up on the shores that morning, and he was taken and deployed in the ministry of the gospel. As you read the book of John, John defines himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Most likely, he was Jesus' favorite disciple, and closest friend. As you remember, when Jesus was being crucified, as you read the Gospels this week, look for this. As Jesus was being crucified, uh, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, is standing there and he turns to John on the cross and he says, hey, take care of my mother. He looks to John to do that. He asked John to carry the responsibility of taking care of his family. So he asked John to wear that responsibility As a leader. This is the author, John the Revelator, of the book of Revelation. He was a close friend to Christ. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. They tried to kill him at one point. They tried to boil him alive alive, and it failed. They could not silence him. They could not contain him. They could not stop him. And here at the end of the first century, he's still writing. And now he's writing the last book of the Bible. Old he was there. He would be up in years. I don't know if we have an exact age though. No? That's fair. So he sent us there from 81 to 95. He's been on this island for a substantial amount of years by Flavius Domitian, or Caesar, the Roman Emperor of the time. He was he Domitian was a moral catastrophe. He was a wreck. Um, he, he was just, I mean, there was things written about him. He was bald, had a protruding belly, spindly legs. I mean, he looked erect, He lived a wreck. He was just the worst of the worst. And then he persecuted the church um, all the more and has sentenced John since 81 to 95. He's been doing hard time on this island because he wouldn't stop talking. And so John found himself in the crosshairs of of Domitian until AD 96 he was released by the new Emperor and he was released from that penal colony there and so Jesus shows up one Sunday morning which we're gonna look at next week in 9 to 20 he literally turns around He hears a voice he turns around and it's Jesus so he's been released and this is the story that Jesus tells him to write the end times so that's the context that's the background to chapter 1. We're just going to unpack 1 to 8. It's what they call the, the prologue or the introductory portion of any letter that is written. And it's very similar to other letters. As a matter of fact, all of the epistles except two begin with grace to you and peace. Or some form of that. Grace to you multiplied to you. Or some form of that. So this is just a customary introduction to a letter. But it gives us insight into John, the revelator, and to whom the topic is about. So this is the, the preface of the letter. I want to frame it up like this. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, and we'll look at verses 4 to 8 quickly, because we're getting out of time here, but we'll do the best we can. This There's the promised blessing in 1 to 3, and then in 4 to 8, there's the promised king, which is Christ, the theme of the book of Revelation. All right. So let's look first at the promise blessing. You can see in the text right out of the gate. Look at it with me. It is the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ or the unveiling. It means to uncover what was hidden and to make it known or revealed. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, the apocalypse to uncover, to reveal Jesus is the sovereign senior pastor over all churches. He has under shepherds, right? Pastors in those local churches. And so Jesus, the chief shepherd, reveals how the end will be. John was expected to write it down exactly as it was disseminated to him. You see the flow there. This is the apocalypse of Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to share with the other bond servants or other pastors, the things which must soon take place, right? The urgency in the text. And he sent it through a holy angel to John. So basically you have God, a story about telling about Christ to other pastors, by a holy angel, and John wrote it down. So John's the pen behind all of this. There's a sequencing there, and everything's lining up so that you have the last book of the Bible, right? It's an important book. That's why it's written like this. If you want to take verse one in its totality, it's massive, it's huge, it's important, it comes with a blessing. You ought to know it, you ought to study it. That's what it's saying. It's it's divine in origin, it's serious, right? Then you see here in verse 2, there is clarification. He's telling the gospel truth. Look what he says. Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus and even to all that he saw. In other words, he's saying simply, listen, this is the real deal. This is everything I saw. It's gospel truth. It's divine truth. It's all the prophecies fulfilled from Old Testament to New in their final form here in the book of Revelation. So he's telling the gospel truth. This is an important letter. It's telling the gospel truth. And then he says it's good there in verse three. It's really good. I'm going to read it again. Blessed is he who reads it. And those who hear the words of the prophecy. It is a prophecy. Remember we are futurist. It's a prophecy. And heed the things which are written in it. For the time Is near or the time is short. That is one of the most important triggers in the text. It's eminency. Nothing has to happen for Jesus to return. It should beg the question in your heart as you even read this. Are you ready? If Jesus were to come back this afternoon. Are you ready? Do you have a right relationship with the Lord? Are you living in a right way? Is there fitness to your faith? Nothing has to happen eschatologically for him to return. And then Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So there's this promised blessing and you can see the flow. It's an introductory comment. This is the apocalypse of Jesus given to pastors by God through an holy angel that John wrote down. John says he's testified to the word of God. It's the testimony of Christ and you could take it to the bank it's gospel truth and so good it's so good that you're going to be blessed because you read it okay so that's the promised blessing now let's look at the promised savior or the promised shepherd or the promised king or Christ look at here's your normal salutation verse 4 John to the seven churches that are in Asia this letter was written to real pastors and real churches so that they would understand end times. Then he says, grace to you and peace. This is normal letter writing. Just like you say, dear Dan, dear Troy, you know, dear whoever. This is how a letter would be written. So, you know, it's in its normal customary package. Grace to you and peace. There's some theology there, right? Grace to you and peace. It's shorthand for the two beautiful qualities of the gospel, grace Getting something you don't deserve and peace, peace that passes all understanding, peace because you're made right with God. You're no longer an enemy. You're at peace with God, right? Who was from him, who was, who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So what he's going to do there is bring the Trinity. Here's your kind of triplet package this is written from God, from him who was and was, who was and who is, is to come. This is written by God himself. It's the immutability, the eternal God, as he always has been. God the Father's behind this letter. He then says, the seven spirits who are before the throne. There's some mystery here. Most people are like, what is he talking about? I think it's a reflection of a reference to the Holy Spirit, and the sevenfold functions of the Holy Spirit as found in Isaiah 11, 2. It's highlighting his activity, the Spirit's work in the process in bringing about the end times and all the different events that are going to happen. That's the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And then he says, and from Jesus Christ. So God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ are all behind this particular letter, right? And then what happens is he gives kind of six qualities, six qualities about Christ here in the passage. And you'll see that in five and six, right? We lost that, we're okay. you need to go? Keep going. see you. big one. I'm not scared. You're not. It's probably my battery, right? You changed it. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's an inside joke. There. All right, so back... So it's from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And there are six things that he describes about Christ. What this is, is what I call like a mini Christology. He's basically defined, this book's about Christ. It's a mini Christology. And there are six things. So let's look at the six, and we'll wrap up and close. From Jesus Christ. First, number one, he is the faithful witness. Witness is martyr. He is the firstborn, the faithful witness. Witness The first to be martyred. The faithful martyr who gave his life for others. Second, he says he's the firstborn of the dead. He pioneered the resurrection. Nobody else had been resurrected. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was resurrected, which we'll celebrate next week. He's the risen Savior. Third, he says he's the ruler of all the kings. Well, this would be absolutely critical, right? Because all of the kings of the earth had been saying that they're the king, right? Domitian, like, follow me, bow down to me. He's saying, no, this is the king of all kings. This is King Jesus. Domitian's not a king. Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings. So that's the third thing that's stated about it. Fourth, he says, he loves us unconditionally. To him who loves us and released us from the sins of by his blood. He loved us unconditional. Agape. Forgiveness. Total forgiveness. He forgives us. He releases us by his blood. As shed on the cross. The burden of sin has been lifted. This is who we're writing about. And then last. In this little mini Christology. He's made us priests. In his kingdom. Look at verse 6. And He has made us to be kingdom priests. To His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's made us priests as well as you can see in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 to 9. It talks about the priesthood of the believer. So you have prophet, priest, and king. That's who the book of Revelation is about. And it separates Him from all other kings, all other people, and defines who He is and why He has the right to speak into our lives, right? Next is the reaction to all of this. It should be your customary response to seeing Christ defined in such beautiful terms. Look at at it. It's doxology at the end of verse 6. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That should be your visceral response. That should be your spiritual act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You should respond this way. You should go, man, this book is serious. This is a killer book. This is about the king of kings. This isn't about some earthly dude. This is this is John writing to set the record straight about who Jesus Christ is. In his first coming, it was humiliation. In his second coming, it's not going to be humiliation, right? It's celebratory. It's big. It's bold. He comes with glory and power. That's who we're talking about. And finally, he wraps up in seven days. He just kind of gives us a theme of where we're going. This is the theme of the book of Revelation. Behold. This word behold is significant. We don't have time to unpack it, but anytime time you'll see it as, a, as you read the book of Revelation. It's introducing a, a significant section coming ahead. So it's behold. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it will be, amen. He is coming. That is the theme of the book of Revelation. And the the challenge to the church. He is coming. And then Jesus himself speaks now. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. First letter of the Greek alphabet. Second letter, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha and Omega. Says the Lord God. Who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Declaring without equivocation that He is God. And when He speaks, He is the second person of the Trinity. He speaks as God. It's like verse 8 is kind of a return label or the return address, right, to all this letter that's going on. He speaks with authority. He is authoritative. He is the King. He is the Lord of history past, and He's the Lord of history future, so let's end with two questions. It's a lot, I know, to kind of take in, but we needed to get through just the, this is like the normal dear John, dear Mark, dear Julie kind of portion of the letter, but it's significant. It, it does beg two questions. The first is this. Jesus is coming. So the first question is this. Will and are you ready? Will you be ready and are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? If nothing has to happen eschatologically, the study of end times, if nothing has to happen, are you ready if He came back this afternoon? It should awaken you. It should cause you to pause. It should cause you to examine yourself and to ask that question. Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? Because He's coming back in victory, right? So, are you ready? And really that's a question if you're outside of Christ, right? If you don't know Christ, you should be asking, am I ready to meet Him? If you're in Christ, it's a different question, similar question, it is this. Are you living like He's coming back today? Are you acting, behaving, thinking like He's coming back today? Like if you knew He was coming back at 4 this afternoon... Would you edit your life? Would you make some changes? Would you wish that yesterday looked different? Or the week before? Or six months ago or a year? I mean, are you living like he's coming back? That's the idea behind the book of Revelation. It asks the one person, if you don't know Christ, are you going to be ready? It asks the other who are in Christ, are you living like it? Because nothing has to happen before he returns in the eschaton. So those are the two questions I this morning. Are you ready? And if you're ready, are you living like you're ready? I mean, are you living out the Christian faith? Are you living out what it means to be like we talked about last week—salt and light? Are are you living like that? I can assure you, this is going to be a fantastic study. I know we went a little kind of—I could tell by everybody like checking out—but
1: I know we went <laughs> a little deeper than normal.
0: But it's necessary, and and I want you to get up tomorrow and. I want you to do two things this week. I'm going to get homework out. Two things. I want you to spend the week in the Gospels kind of following Holy Week because I think it's really significant and you should stay close to Christ during Holy Week and just thinking through all the things that took place. Second, as you approach next week, I want you to go back through and review 1 to 8 here, which is this, the prologue. It's just like the introduction. It's the first paragraph of a long letter. That's all it is. But I want you to go back and think about what it's saying. Think about the fact that you'll get blessed I think most people today are avoiding the book of Revelation because they can't quite figure all the pieces out. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the tools that you're going to need to get through that. And I promise you, if you'll read it and hear it when I teach and then obey it as God prompts, the Spirit prompts your heart to obey, you're going to be super blessed. So it's a series, the seven, that comes with blessing, all right? But it was necessary to put our thinking caps on this morning. And I'll come back to some of those themes, and I'll add in some, some historical context and some review of the end times as we walk through. But I think it's going to be fun. If I'm the only one excited, then I'll get the blessing. You guys can just stare me. That's okay. I'm happy with that, too. So I am grateful for you. If you're a guest with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. And uh, certainly we want most of all that you know who Christ is, and we'd love to introduce Him to you. So if you don't know Christ, come see me afterwards. Let me pray, and then we're going to start... And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the book of Revelation as we start this little mini-series on the seven churches that we have learned from them and from the apocalypse. Written by John the Revelator. We're so grateful for John. His faithfulness for all those years who in A.D. 33 was standing at the cross seeing Christ crucified. Then A.D. 96 as an older man. He's exiled on Patmos and called to write the last book of the Bible. His faithfulness is epic. May that be true of us as well. May we learn from him as we study his letter, the last book of the Bible, about the last times and end times that we need to know. Lord, as we turn our hearts and attention towards the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to celebrate and rejoice in all that you've accomplished on the cross for us. We ask this in Christ. Amen.